Hello and welcome to MedTalk Podcast, a medical revision podcast for medical students by medical students. I'm Shannon Kelly, a medical student currently studying in Albany, Western Australia. Joining me today is Dr. Carly Roxborough. She's a GP obstetrician and a senior lecturer here at the Rural Clinical School in Albany. Welcome to part two of our episode on normal antenatal care. This episode will cover the role of ultrasound throughout pregnancy, as well as first trimester screening. You can find part one of this episode on our website, medtalkpod.com, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There, we discuss preconception, the initial antenatal visit, investigations and the antenatal care schedule. touched on the dating ultrasound um, when we were speaking earlier. Could you just talk us through what the role of ultrasound is in routine antenatal care and what's the average number of ultrasounds that your normal um, pregnant woman would have? Sure. Sure, so the first ultrasound is usually the dating scan and the dating scan is important because as I mentioned earlier on, often the calculation that the woman's done from her last menstrual period is not quite right. Um, It's also really useful for picking up um, things outside normal, for example twins. Um, If you find twins then it changes your management of your whole pregnancy. Um, You need to be on the higher dose of folate from early on, you need more scans and so on. It also will pick up um, fetal demise, so if a woman believes that she's pregnant and actually she's got a missed miscarriage um, that will show up on the dating scan Um, and that's usually done around the eight weeks mark so usually um, you wouldn't encourage someone to do that before seven weeks because it's sometimes hard to see an embryo Um, and after about 12 13 weeks I, I think it becomes less accurate because you start to get large embryos and small embryos and a bit more variation so first first dating scan is the first ultrasound um, the second one is usually around 12 weeks and that's called the nuchal translucency scan um, that is the one that's used for down syndrome screening so that's combined with a blood test and the scan is used to look at the thickness of the skin on the back of the baby's neck and essentially what that represents is the level of edema of the embryo so if that thickness on the back of the neck is increased it means that the embryo has more fluid than usual and it's a marker of heart failure um, or other abnormalities so with the down syndrome screening or the nuchal translucency scan they use that number plus some numbers from some blood tests, which is BHCG and PAPA, um, and they put it into a computer program that includes as well the age of the mother and whether or not they smoke and what their um, weight is as well, I think. And it then spits out a result that says your risk is one in 10,000 or whatever it is. Um, So with that ultrasound, that's usually done at 12 weeks, but there's a blood test at 10 weeks as well. The third ultrasound, which is 
standard in pregnancy is the anatomy scan and that's done at 20 weeks. That's the also called the morphology scan and that's the one where they look at every aspect of the baby in detail, so look at the brain, look at the kidneys, look at the heart, make sure it's all plumbed in correctly. Um, and if they're all, those three scans are normal, then that's, that's all you would normally get for a healthy pregnancy. And we talked about the first trimester screening, which is the dual test with the nuchal translucency and the bloods as well. Are there any other um, screening options available for women during their pregnancy? There's a test called NIPT or non-invasive prenatal testing, which is becoming more and more commonly used. There's also one called maternal serum screening that medical students should probably know about, but probably is hardly ever used now. So um, the Down syndrome screening is probably takes up a whole consultation just to explain yeah. to women exactly what, what their options are because it is quite complicated. So um, the first option is to do the nuchal translucency scan combined with the blood test which I've told you about already. Um, and that one will tell you your risk based on your age and then your risk with the calculations including the blood test and the um, nuchal translucency, it's got a sensitivity of about 80%, so it does miss some cases, and um, it's not universally available because the sonographers need to have special training to be able to do that um, measurement of the neck. It's quite a specific skill, so sometimes, for example, in Albany a few years ago, we didn't have a sonographer who could do it, so that became a barrier when women have to travel. Yeah. Um, elsewhere to get it done. The NIPT or the non-invasive prenatal testing is relatively new and that is a blood test that's taken from the mother and the way that it works is that it measures fragments of DNA in the plasma. So what they do is take the red cells out then they take some of the white cells from the mum and use that as the sort of blueprint of whatever belongs to the mum in terms of her genetics. And then they take all the DNA that's floating around in the circulation, delete all the stuff that belongs to the mum, and therefore the rest of it must belong to the embryo. And they can actually amplify those small fragments of DNA to work out whether there's an over-representation of one of the chromosomes. So they can, they'll look for overrepresentation of 21, 18 and 13, which is your common trisomies. They can also look for the presence or absence of the Y chromosome, which will tell you the gender. Um, so it's a really amazing scientific process um, that is available from 10 weeks of gestation. The um, Sensitivity and specificity are really high, so it will detect at least 99% of cases, um, although it is still a screening test and requires a diagnostic test to confirm it, and neosynthesis or a chorionic villus sampling. The biggest barrier is that it's not funded by Medicare, so the cost is around $400. Um, and that's probably the 
biggest reason why women here in this town don't um, use it as much as some of the other, I think in Perth I've heard that about 70% of women have the NIPT at okay. the moment but yeah. um, I think in Albany probably more like 10% are using it. Mm -hmm. I um, can see how that would be a barrier yeah. for women. The other problem with the NIPT is that it will only tell you about the chromosomes so it can't tell you that the baby has grown a brain for example or that it's got four limbs so whenever you order an NIPT um, it's recommended to also do an early morphology scan or a 12-week scan so the radiologist will do that 12-week scan without doing the calculations um, and just check that there's a heart there's kidneys there's um, a brain and that four limbs and those sorts of things um, so the cost does add up because having a scan usually you're out of pocket about a hundred dollars for that as well okay so it's an yeah. additive cost there so there's there's multiple factors coming into play mm -hmm. um, usually when I counsel someone about this I start off by um, asking them if they know what Down syndrome is and what chromosomal disorders means and I explain that to them and then I tell them that we're going to talk about some tests that we can do on the pregnancy to look for these things um, and there's usually three groups of people so this is what I tell women there's there's three ways of looking at this there's people who say I would um, never have a termination no matter what and I don't care if this baby has any problems it doesn't matter to me and I don't need to do these tests then there's other people who say um, I really feel strongly that if this baby is going to have a disability I would rather have a termination and so I must do these tests and know what's going on and then there's other people who are in the middle who say I'm not really sure how I feel but I think mm -hmm. I would want to do the test and then um, decide what deal to do with, with it when I when I get the answer but it's really important that they know that it's only a screening test it's not a diagnostic test so they have to be prepared that if it comes up as a high risk then you're going to have more discussion about where to go from there um, and I've found that starting off with that approach will help to um, help me to explain to them what's going on because if they say I don't care I'm never going to have a termination and then I say well there's this really expensive test you can have um, they can just say up front no this isn't for me um, whereas other people need me to tell them all of the information so so let's say that Wendy chooses to do the um, first trimester screening the nuchal translucency mm -hmm. with the bloods um, and it comes back that she's got high risk for trisomy 21. Mm -hmm. um, what what further investigations might be warranted if she so chooses? Yeah, so the first thing I would do is show her the report and it will say, how old is Wendy? She's 29. She's 29, so her background risk would be something in the order of one in 600 or one in 700 and it will say that on the report and then it will say adjusted risk one in whatever so anything more than one in 300 risk is considered to be high risk so 
First of all, I'll reassure her and say that this is a screening test and yours has come up as one in 200, which means there's a one in 200 chance that your baby has got Down syndrome. It also means that there's a 199 in 200 chance that it hasn't. So she has to understand that it's a, it's a screening test. The only way to know is to do a diagnostic test. So the diagnostic tests are chorionic villus sampling and amniocentesis. Um, there's pros and cons with those. So chorionic villus sampling obviously is taking some of the placental tissue. Um, there's a slightly higher rate of miscarriage with that procedure. And I don't know exactly what it is, but um, it would depend also on the skill of the practitioner. So I would definitely want that to be done in a place where there's highly skilled people who are doing that all the time. So I usually refer them to a maternal fetal medicine unit. The advantage of coronary villus sampling is that it can be done earlier, so um, up to about 14 weeks. The other way of doing it is an amniocentesis, which is where you take some fluid from the sac around the baby. Obviously that's safer, so it's got a lower rate of miscarriage, but it's also later, so I think you have to be past 15 or 16 weeks because you have to wait for the amnion and the chorion to fuse together. And so the delay is um, more of a complicating factor there. Um, obviously if it turns out that the family decide that they do want to have a termination, the later you leave it, the more difficult it is to do that um, procedure and the more, the more risk there is there. Yeah. The other thing that you might sometimes see happen is when someone has a high risk nuchal scan, sometimes they'll go and have an NIPT. So you can explain to them that it's still not a diagnostic test, it's a screening test, but it's a screening test with a much higher specificity and sensitivity. So um, sometimes we do an NIPT and then refer them to maternal fetal medicine and they might repeat the, the nuchal scan themselves and in, in the face of a normal NIPT and a normal scan say you know two or three weeks later by the time they get there they might decide that an amniocentesis isn't necessary after all. Thanks for chatting to us today about normal pregnancy, Carly. Um, you were very clear and it was a really good overview I found and I hope it's helpful for our other students as well. Normal pregnancy is a topic that's foundational knowledge in learning obstetrics and gynaecology and I think having a good approach to normal pregnancy, the investigations that might be required, exam findings um, and history of course is essential and it will allow better understanding when pathology occurs. Do you have any final clinical pearls that you'd like students to know or any resources that you found mm. particularly helpful that they could access? Oh, thanks Shannon. I hope that um, what I've said has been helpful to clarify some of these things for you. Um, I think the most important thing that I would say to medical students who are trying to learn about obs and gynae is to look at the patient information that's available because if you can understand the journey from the patient's point of view it will um, help you to organize your thinking from the medical point of view so i would recommend that you have a look at the pregnancy birth and baby book that's put out by the health department which we give to all 
um, pregnant women um, and is available online so I can give you the link for that. Um, there's also the um, orange book, the handheld record that the women have. That's an excellent resource for students to use. So if you um, go through that orange book, it tells you what you need to do in the antenatal history and it tells you what you need to do in terms of counselling at each visit. If you go to the back page, it tells you what happens at each of the booked visits and what things need to be ticked off. So um, that's always a really good resource if you're getting stuck in your consultation and you're not sure if something's due, it's all it's all written there for you. There are also some really good resources that the tertiary hospitals have for GPs. So for example, there's a King Edward Shared Care um, for GPs booklet. And I noticed today that Fiona Stanley have got a GP antenatal shared care guidelines, which looks really comprehensive and um, thorough. So I think those sorts of things will show you what, what are the red flags that you need to look out for and understanding the basic antenatal care um, needs, needs to still happen even if things do go, if, even if things do become complicated, you've still got to make yeah. sure that you're getting the basics right because that's where you're going to pick things up and make sure that everything's safe. For listening to our podcast you can find this episode as well as all our other episodes and their transcripts on our website www.medtalkpod.com you can also like us on facebook www.facebook.com forward slash medtalkpod to stay updated about all the new episodes and any new learning resources you can also send us episode ideas and feedback on our website or our email medtalkpod at outlook.com.